link, learn, and connect with some of the best, most articulate, and practical professionals in the field of speech-language pathology. Do you work with school-aged children? You're in the right place to gather new information and great ideas for you and your therapy kids. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the EZR program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Within the field of speech-language pathology, we've known for a long time that what and how a parent-slash-caregiver interacts with their young child is critically important from a variety of perspectives. Now, this podcast details where much of that information comes from, and you'll learn many interactive strategies that you can use and share with your parents. It's chock full of good information. Here we go. Welcome, everybody. And before we do actually start, let's go over some disclosures. Regarding financial disclosures, Teresa does receive an honorarium for this podcast from speechtherapypd.com, and she offers relevant products through Teachers Pay Teachers. And I also receive an honorarium for the speech link, and I'm a presenter for speechtherapypd.com and receive royalty payments and I own Speech Dynamics. As regarding non-financial disclosures, Teresa nor I have no non-financial disclosures to report. So there we go. So <laughs> I would like to officially welcome everybody to our live SpeechLink podcast, sponsored, of course, by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm Shar Beauchart, your speech language pathologist host, and I'm so glad that you're here for our practical topic, and that is surprising and practical language therapy applications from a 1980s and 90s research study. And before we actually do begin, I'd like to remind you that you're more than welcome to participate during the podcast. Just type your question or comment into the chat, and as appropriate, I'll read it, and Teresa will respond. This is Teresa's third podcast appearance on SpeechLink. And she is good. She's an amazing therapist. And in full disclosure, she's a friend. So Teresa Farnham, or Terry as she likes to be called, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, is a speech-language pathologist who's worked in a variety of settings for several decades, including 20 years in the schools, as well as in clinics and hospitals. Currently, she has her own private practice in Mount Vernon, Ohio, called Clarity for Communication. She is an informed and experienced specialist in pediatric speech, language, and assistive technology services. And personally, I have deemed her as a therapist's therapist, okay? <laughs> she, I, I guess I'm kind of a fan of yours, Terry. <laughs> well, likewise, to mutual admiration Aww, society. It's very nice. <laughs> she was the 2018 recipient, and well-deserved, no doubt, of the National Patricia Lindemood Clinical Leadership Award for her role in promoting evidence-based practice in phonology within the profession. In addition, she has shared her practical knowledge via seminars for many years, including the Bureau of Education and Research, where we met, and is a popular presenter for conferences and conventions. She presents on a variety of professional issues, and I'm always impressed with her knowledge and practicality. I'm super excited that you are here, and we're talking about this really beneficial topic. So welcome to the speech link, Terry. Well, it's great to be here, and I've been looking forward to this because we were in agreement that this is such an important body of research, and so rather sadly, overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. In professional training programs, but Yeah. Um, I agree. And I, you know, in the language seminars that I've done through the years, I did talk about the Hart and Risley study, Risley study, and I would ask how many people are familiar and I get maybe one or two hands. So, yes, I think it has been overlooked. So, this study, you may be wondering about this study, the study that we're talking about just so you know, cannot be Googled or found in a journal. It's compiled in two informative books. Okay, let me just 
show you. Yes, they are books. <laughs> okay, really interesting books. This work, and perhaps more accurately, this passion was originated by two people, Betty Hart, PhD, out of the University of Kansas, and Todd Risley, who hailed from the University of Alaska at Anchorage. I have often wondered how they got together. It must have been at an ASHA convention or something. And do know that this work had never been done before. Nothing like it had ever been done. They devoted years, many years, to the project and their resultant data, which there's a lot, and I'm sure that we'll be talking about some of that, specifies numerous helpful verbal forms of interaction that we as professionals and parents as well need to be doing with our very young children. So Terry, first question, from your perspective, why should we as SLPs and others that are watching and listening be intensely interested in this project and its results? Well, as you said, it was really the first of its kind, and it was done in an era when the technology that we have available to us was not available. They were using reel-to-reel -reel recording and, you know, hauling things in and out of people's houses, and it was such a, an enormous project in that they had 42 families with children between the ages of 18 months and three years, and they had a, you know, grad student, I'm sure, go in on a weekly basis to simply record what was going on in the house for an hour a week. And then they sort of synced the recording with the notes that the graduate student was taking about what was actually happening. They didn't do video recording because they thought that would be too intrusive. And in the 80s, it would have been you would have had the giant thing sitting on your shoulder with the battery that weighed 10 pounds. But <laughs> that right. We had one of those. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they tried to be as unobtrusive as possible. The researcher did not interact with the child or the parents. They just they had a routine. They went in and sat down, and the family carried on in as much as you can when somebody else is in your house, I think. And they actually did some research on how things were compared, you know, over time, whether having that person there made a difference? Did they adapt to it? And it was a fairly short adaptation period. And hmm. things were sort of comparable among all the groups of families that they were working with. So for 18 months, they did this. And then they spent the next 10 years looking at the data. They had, I had the number in my head a little bit ago, like an incredible number of utterances that were recorded. Just so many, so much information just from one hour a week. And then they took that one hour a week, analyzed it in a variety of ways, which is why I think they wrote a book rather than publishing it, because each chapter in the book takes a different perspective on what the data showed them. Okay, so we talked about vocabulary here, then we're going to talk about the quality of the interaction. Then we're going to say, well, how many words were spoken to the child? They have a multitude of ways of looking at the data, and to summarize it for a research paper would have been impossible. Yeah. Just, yeah. So now there's a device called a Lena that you can put in a child's pocket and it will follow them around all day <laughs> and record everything that they say and what's said to them. And they have the ability to use specialized software that will identify adult voices versus the child's voice. And I'm sure the proximity of the microphone makes a difference, you know, in terms of it's not, it's another child or it's the child being studied. Yeah. They did another study of that. I'm just looking at it here. It was published in ASHA back in 2017. Mm -hmm. They only looked at three factors. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very interesting. And it's a first step in the direction. Uh, Hart and Risley, that was a first step in the direction. I mean, this is probably the second step. But Hart and Risley were much more ambitious than this study. They, because I don't think they started out with this idea. I think they had so much data and they felt that it was such a treasure trove that they couldn't leave it alone. Mm -hmm. And so they, over the next 10 years, began to look at various factors. And some of the categories they came up with to discuss things actually rose out of the data, mm -hmm. not out of, oh, okay, so we need to talk about this. No, no, it was, huh, look at this pattern that's emerging. Let's look at that more closely. Let's give it a name. Let's call it, you know, some descriptive thing and think about what that means for children. Yeah. Well, you know, thinking back 
And, you know, I read the book a, a while back. I haven't read it recently. I'm sorry, I skimmed through. But just trying to put myself in the place of some of those individuals, whether they were students or whomever went out and, you know, went to the homes. I mean, those of you that were not around at that time, you know, in those decades, a reel-to-reel tape recorder was maybe, what, 18 inches or, you know, 20 oh, inches yeah, at yeah, least, yeah, heavy. Yeah. And we're talking reels that, you know, went round and round. <laughs> Real like movie reels. Yeah. 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 I mean, just amazing. And then, as I recall, they hauled that back to their office and then painstakingly just tallied. Yes. I yes, mean, and it seems like it took six hours or more to do one hour. Is that yes. right? Or was it yes. eight hours? Yeah, something like that. It was a lot. Horrendous. I think they got better at it this time. But they first transcribed the whole thing and then they started counting, you know, how many verbs, how many adverbs, who was speaking, uh, just was it play? Was it mealtime? Was it just every aspect of that recording? And then they took that information and extrapolated it out to a 14-hour waking day. So they had a small, huge, but small relative to the child's entire day data set. And then they said, okay, so if this is what happens in an hour, the same hour every week, mm. then we can guess that you know this is what happens across the child's day. And they're most famous for the conclusion that they came to mm -hmm. about how many words were spoken to children. Yes. I always have to pull up yes. the graph here. Yes, yes. I'm just thinking that that is what usually that you hear about, this humongous amount of language that, you know, sectors heard. And, you know, I think we kind of need to, to get into that, too. It was in Kansas City and in the 80s, early 90s. And, you know, it was a different world at that moment in time. And I'm sure that they wanted to hit all, you know, walks of life at that point in time to take a look at a range of families and people that, you know, had high power jobs and people that had, you know, just blue collar jobs. And, you know, they looked at a range of socioeconomic levels. And didn't they have, I think they had three different levels. And, you know, the thing is, I think of that, and, you know, there's always been individuals that make a lot of money, that make some money, that make no money, <laughs> you know? And I think of my time in the schools, you know, I want to say that I had a pretty good span of kids on my caseload, you know, some from affluent families, some from lower socioeconomic families. So I think that the socioeconomic issue may or may not be, you know, accurate as far as, oh, you know, all kids are going to hear, you know, if they're in affluent families, they're going to hear more words. If they're in low socioeconomic families, they're going to hear, you know, fewer words. And that is pretty much the outcome. Okay. But I'm sure that there were other variables that played into it. Do you recall any of those variables? And first, give us those words or give us the numbers of words within those categories. And then if you could share, if you have that in your brain, <laughs> some of those variables, you know, and that it was so distinctive. It was distinct. Yes. Yeah, yes, it, it was. was clear -cut. The interesting thing to me, the first time I went through it, I was actually working in exclusively in a preschool program. So it was very pertinent to what I was trying to do on a daily basis. And I had the opportunity to hear them at a conference. Oh, you But did. it was an early childhood conference, oh, not a speech conference. <laughs> Ah. So, yes, yeah, that was quite yeah, uh, cool. It was impressive. Yes. But the interesting thing to me was that they did try and have a representative spectrum of the SES status. There were more at the high end than at the low end, I think, about 13 families at one end, 42 families total, 13 at one end and six at the other and the rest of them kind of in the middle. But what they found the ultimate groups that they came up with were not necessarily based on income. They were more based on educational background of the parents and as, which of course tied into income. But as they said, they would have teachers are not necessarily as highly paid as plumbers. So right. they, they divided it instead of a upper SES group, they called it the higher education group. 
And then there was the middle group, which was the working class group. And then there was the third group, which was the welfare group, they called it. And what they found was just striking because of the 13 higher, I'm looking at the book here, higher SES children of professionals, the cumulative number of words that a child heard by age 36, the number of different words was like, you know, 1,200 or something like that, different words from their parents. But the cumulative number of total words was 30 million more words were spoken to those children. Wow. In the extrapolated data, 30 million more were spoken to the professional group than were spoken to the work, uh, the welfare class. And the working class fell about two-thirds of the way down okay. between the two groups. And they that's how they fell out. And what they found was that that same graph is repeated again and again and again, that it's reflected in... They went back and followed up, I think it was 29 families in the fourth grade. Hmm. So to get 29 out of 42, I think it's impressive. Yeah. Uh, you know, that far down the road, they didn't touch, they were able to... Fourth grade, and, yeah, because these kids yeah. were infants. Many of them were infants. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But their academic performance paralleled those original graphs that showed 30 million more words then. So their conclusion was that a key to getting children to succeed is to have them hear a lot of language. Yeah. Hello. We that, right? Yeah, it just <laughs> verifies it. And I do yes, have, yes. you know, from a cheat sheet that I used to use in my courses, okay. that the professional group, the kids heard a total of over those two and a half years, you know, they went in one time per month was 42 million, 42 million words. The working class, the center was heard 23 million. That's like 19. Yeah, that's a huge gap. And then the lower, what they called the welfare group, was 11 million, 11 million. And that's, I mean, those are huge. Those are very defined. Just, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. amazing to me. And what is it that the number that they say that kindergarten, that kindergartners should have as they enter into kindergarten, that they should, oh, their that their vocabulary, I'm thinking that it was like, like 10,000, 14,000. Was it that much? Maybe 30. That they should have under their belt in kindergarten? Wow. It's something like that. Yeah, wow. It's a lot. Wow. That may be first or second grade, but it, yeah. Yeah, I'd always heard it was, you know, three or 4,000 like that. But then, you no, know. I think it's I, more than that. You're, you know, I'm more artic and, you know, <laughs> speech stuff. Give me a mouth, you know. And I know just enough about language, you know, to get me through. But, but you know, you're probably closer. It's a significant number of words that kids need to know. You know, so keep going here, you know, apply the research to our clinical practice and so on. Yeah. The whole idea of, you know, kids need to have a certain number of words in their vocabulary. They actually tracked that as well. They kept track of every word a child said in that hour and then, you know, just totaled up how many different words that was. And again, those three tiers just played out. It was almost exactly the same. The other very interesting thing to me as a preschool practicing speech pathologist at the time was that one of the, there were also qualitative differences in interaction between the parents, not just quantity. It wasn't only that. And, they, you know, I was reading this afternoon that certainly there were families in the professional group that didn't use nearly as much language as some of the families in the working class group, you know, the, who knows? Were they engineers or <laughs> something? You know, who knows? Who knows? But most, you know, for the preponderance of them did do more. And there were welfare families where there was a lot of talking going on. But again, the pattern was for most of them to use far fewer words. And the difference in interaction was that for the upper group, the professional group, they were engaged in giving information, asking questions, providing guidance to the child about what to do next, commenting on what they were doing, all that sort of thing. And that the welfare group, by and large, was giving directions. They were maintaining behavior. They were responding. If the child did something they shouldn't have done, that's when they responded. Whereas the other group, they were clued into their child and trying to, you know, make sure that they were doing what they needed to do and that they understood what they were doing, whereas the welfare group tended to just manage behavior, 
Not to say that they didn't talk about other things. Right, right. To a much higher degree, that was what their interactions with their children were about. And, you know, as I read that and the first time and looked at parents that were in our program, I could see that playing out. So, you know, what can we do to change that somewhat, to help those parents become more engaged? I, as a result of reading this, I actually started a parent training course that I made as many parents as I could come to. And especially when they were just entering the preschool program at age three with a child with a disability, you know, and we would sit and, you know, I had a little, some acronyms that I used for different things, but things that they needed to do that, what does your child need from you? They need your attention, your focused attention. They need your eye contact because a lot of what I saw was parents. Well, and I'm sure it's worse today. We didn't have cell phones when I was working in preschool, but, you know, to look at a screen and talk to your child over here, that's not quality interaction. Quality means you put the cell phone down. You look at the child. You talk to them directly. Focus attention, eye contact, lots of words, and unconditional love. I mean, those, <laughs> those are the things that kids need. And I used to, my primary direction to parents was talk until you think you can't talk anymore. And then, then you've probably said enough. You know, narrate what you're doing. If you're washing the dishes, whatever you're thinking, say it out loud. Just say it so that they hear what you're doing and they have some idea about what you're thinking about. I would say that that was a problem at that time, but it's a bigger problem now. My most recent kids that I've had, you know, it's like they don't really have any idea what their parents are thinking. That's too strong of a statement. But that, you know, in the days when we sat on the couch and read a newspaper, the child could climb up in your lap and look at the comics. They may not have understood what was going on, but they were they were mm-hmm. engaged in the same activity. When I have this little tablet, my tiny phone in my hand and I'm looking at it and I'm standing up, they can't. There's no way they can get anywhere close to it. And they have no idea what's going on in it. So I had a question here. I said technology affected parent-child interaction and language development yeah. hugely, I think. Yes. I think it's we can bet on that because they're not getting those basic Yeah. Well, they're not getting the interaction with parents as they once did, but also kids, you know, children have. Right. With each other. Yes. Well, yeah. And they have a screen in their hand as well. And I've seen, you know, baby carriages with built in, you know, iPad holders, for example, you know, where there is that, I'm going to say sort of a push to really, you know, hand this touchscreen device to this child and they keep themselves busy and entertained. And I mean, I've seen it, you know, I've been on the road a few times and flying here and there and I'll see parents that just hand the iPad. I remember one very distinctly where he was a toddler and he was sitting on mom's lap the whole way and you know, and had that iPad and was, you know, doing whatever he was doing. He was across the way and back one. So I couldn't really see what was on the screen. But mom tried to take the device away one time and the kid screamed bloody murder. <laughs> you know, but that's the only interaction. You don't want that on the plane. But that's the only, I didn't hear the kid babbling. I mean, you know, the kid doesn't babble at that age. You're not supposed to. But I heard like nothing coming from that kid's mouth, nothing, no, nothing, (laughs) okay? And I really tuned in to see what was going on. Everything was just visual and, you know, moving their hand. And and there was no interaction with the mom. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, is this what's happening with that child? And then I'm thinking, is this what's happening kind of, you know, with this generation? And I'm sure it's not you know, as pervasive at home, but I don't know that. Certainly on the plane, maybe that's a whole different situation, you know. (laughs) You're going to do whatever you can to keep things calm. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. But I can tell you the kid was very familiar with the device. You know, he knew what he was doing. Sure. (laughs) You know, and I'm- Well, and if you think about the nature of those devices is that they are interactive. Yeah. And interaction is what children crave. Yeah. And so here, interact with this, and it's an entirely different- interaction. I mean, there may be voices and music and that sort of thing, but it's strictly cause and effect. When you're talking with another person, you've got lots of possibilities. I mean, an infinite number of potential responses that could come. Right. And likewise, a parent talking to their child, you know, you're trying to 
engage in a conversation about, you know, the plastic food on the kids' picnic table, and they say something that's completely out there. It's something entirely different. That's typical. But the tablet keeps you on the same task. It's really, in some ways, more monotonous. Although, you know, kids know how to get out and they screen for the next thing. Yeah. But they, you know, I think it's an attention span killer too, because they can't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kids, you know, and I, we're kind of turning this into a, <laughs> you know, into a touchscreen device, you know, sort of poo-pooing it, you know, I'm sure, you know, it does have its benefits. And I have read some articles where, you know, if parents sit down with the child and go through and look at the stories and discuss what's on the page and read the words and point to the letters and have the child, you know, imitate and all of that, that that can be a good thing. And I guess that that whole you know, let's interact together kind of takes on, you know, kind of a similarity with just having a book in hand. So I guess the whole difficulty is just here, honey, keep yourself busy. And that isn't good. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. yeah. So exactly. So getting back uh, to our article. Yes. I know that, you know, that there was a huge amount of data that they came up with. Do you have some of that and those things that they came up with that we can kind of tuck away in our minds as we're talking with parents or interacting even with teachers and, you know, that whole interactive piece. Do you have some of that there? One of the most interesting things to me is these were categories that rose out of the data, oh, good. not things that they said, we're going to go look for this. Okay. As they were counting nouns and verbs and whatever else they were counting, this is the sort of thing that rose to the top. And it accounted for 60% of the differences in their children's skills and output. So it was the, the whole 60 million word gap was important, mm -hmm. but these were actually bigger. What does that and mean? The, the I don't have a visual uh, they, image of that yet. Okay. So let me give you the categories. Maybe we okay. can pull that together. All right. The first thing was late in the discussion, they start to talk about the richness of language spoken to children. That accounted for 60% of, uh, of the differences. So can I interrupt you As there? compared to socioeconomic status, which was 30%. Ah. So the richness of the input actually was much more powerful. So could that be like, you know, thinking of the tier words, you know, maybe tier two words, maybe tier three words? Because yeah, those what are they're saying words is, than tier one. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, it's language diversity was the first thing. Okay. And that was the sum of different nouns plus different modifiers used per hour. Hmm. So the more input, variety of input, not just quantity, okay. changed Oh, look, there's a big elephant. Oh, that one's a baby. Look at the baby elephant. I mean, that's the kind of thing that to look at. Just variety of nouns. That matters. Okay, good. Using lots of different nouns. Feedback tone was the second thing. And that was the amount of affirmatives used. Approval plus repetition. Oh, look, you put your baby's dress on. Okay. How nice. Are you going to a party, you know, and you're following up and doing that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When they got the tone, their calculation was to take approval plus repetition divided by the total number of affirmatives plus negatives per hour. Hmm. And that was another thing that was interesting to me when I mentioned earlier that the parents in the welfare group tended to be telling their kids what to do or what not to do. Those counted as negatives, and the higher the ratio of negatives to positives, the lower the performance of the child in the end of the study. Ah, I'm thinking directives, commands, sort of just, you know, not really interacting, just more coming from me to you. <laughs> right. And right. not really involving. You, don't do that's not yours. Don't touch that. Give it back. Yes. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. If the tone was more negative, that that ended up being a fairly large factor in child outcomes. So again, that's something to think about talking to parents about, you know, how many positive things can you say? Let's record. Let's see or make a recording in the class of, you know, your child, the child interacting with the teachers and, okay, what did you notice about that? How can we, you know, what could you do at home that might be like that? What could you say that would be positive when, you know, or are they just trying to stay afloat? And I think there was a, a sense of that. Stress levels were very high comparatively in the welfare class and our group. 
And that resulted in a lot less pleasant interaction okay. between parents. They were and just trying to manage things. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Just trying to keep body and soul together. Okay. You know, okay. That's good. Yeah. So, and I'm thinking that, you know, as far as the affirmations and the involvement, I mean, that's really therapy. I mean, that's kind of what we just do, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. And well, I think that affirms what we just do. Yeah. You know, that it in fact is important and we need to keep it up. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there was a time in my life when I just assumed that everybody does that, <laughs> you know, that's just what you do, you know, or you go to the grocery store and you talk about all the stuff in the aisles and, oh, look what you picked up. And, oh, look, that's a red can. That's a green can. And here, I'll put this red one back. And, you know, you just... That's just sort of interacting with your child and that not everybody looks at that form of talking with your child with rather than to. When I think we have to think too about maybe what level of experience they have had with that kind of interaction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is, you know, what kind of input are they getting? What kind of input did they get as a child? One of the most fascinating things to me about this whole thing when I read it years ago was that the parents made a shift when the child got to the place where they were using the same average number of words as everybody else in the family. Like in a, in, like their MLU was comparable to conversation for others. So if, you know, by the time children are four, they should be using, you know, an average of four or whatever. But when the kids rose to a certain level, then the parents stopped or did far less of the kind of thing that you're talking about, describing all that. And their interactions became much more peer-to-peer. Adult-like so or? Yeah, more adult-like. Okay. That, you know, they weren't always jumping in and giving a little help here and there and that kind of thing. They were saying, oh, that looks really nice. Show it to dad, you know, that's, and not using the same degree of trying to point things out, trying to draw the child's attention because they did that. And it was when the child reached the conversational level of, the group that they were in. So what that meant was the professional families persisted longer because it took longer for the kids to get to the level of communication that they expected. You know, how did they know? That was my first reaction when I read that. It was like, is it so intuitive that a parent can listen and just know, well, you know, that's the expectation without ever having to think that, that they simply, their responses shifted to more of a I say more like peer to peer. Yeah. I don't think those were their words, yeah, but it but was that kind of interaction rather than, you know, a interventionist parent kind of okay. <laughs> yeah. thing. So interesting. So we're talking at about three years of age. Yeah, because yeah, kids are pretty verbal at three. They I are. mean, they are. Or they're supposed to be. I mean, I haven't seen that many of them. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm assuming they're out are there somewhat somewhere. different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I see a kid that talking. That was the best thing about our preschool program. We had yeah. typical, we had, it was half typical, half kids with special needs. Oh, and that's interesting. It was, you know, you always had a frame of reference. Yes. <laughs> right beside you. That's good. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we need to move on here. <laughs> Try a little harder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Because I, you know, I, after you work so long with children, you just, it's like fascinating that just anybody's talking, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, the kid's carrying on a full conversation, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, early, early in our married life, my husband and I both worked at a special school for kids with significant disabilities. And he was teaching preschool at the time. I was the speech pathologist for the whole building, which was early intervention through the adult workshop. I mean, it was like zero to eight hours. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It was quite a job. Anyway, yeah. it, was a, it was a wonderful place to work. But we had our first child in the course of our time there. Yeah. And we just thought she was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> we had working yes. with these kids. You know, had no idea what normal was supposed yeah. to look like. I know. And it's relative. <laughs> We have a oh. genius on our hands. Yes. 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 Oh, gosh. Oh, well, so, you know, that, that is interesting, though, getting back that, that parents, and it sounds like it was fairly universal, that parents just yes, sort of it was. That was the stunning thing about yeah, it. Yeah. Their style of speech and the way that they interacted with the kids. Isn't that interesting? It's not like they all got together and, you know, somebody sent out a memo. It was just something that happened. 
Well, yeah, if they quantified it. I mean, it would be hard for me to quantify that. Yeah. So, you know, they're not thinking about it. They're just, that's, you know, it's part of the developmental process. We want to bring the kid along. You know, it's like walking, I guess, on a larger scale that, you know, when the child is walking well, we're keeping an eye that they don't run into the road, but we're trusting them to do it in a very different kind of way than we were when they were cruising around the furniture mm-hmm. that, you know, we're, we're going to support them and we're going to say, okay, let me take your finger. We're going to yeah. cross here. You know, we're not doing that anymore. And the, the same thing happens with language and cognition. It's just fascinating. It is fascinating. That really is. That really is. And I'm thinking about, you know, we were sort of talking about our experiences there with speech slash language delayed slash disordered kids. What about the child that is, you know, three, four, five, and they're not speaking in full sentences and communicating and so on. So, you know, I wonder, have you read any research about parents interacting with their children beyond that age of three, which seems to be sort of a magical age at this point, right, right. according to this study. Any inst- I don't know of any, but maybe you do. Well, not with typical children, I don't think. I, we talked the other day about back in the 70s, I want to say, that Jim McDonald at Ohio State did a, a seminal piece of, of research about children with Down syndrome. And he found that you know, this process that language shifts, the interaction style shifts more than language, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. that, you know, parents are doing a lot of guiding and then, and, you know, speaking more slowly and highlighting those words and all that sort of thing. And then when the kids are really talking, they don't do it nearly as much of that anymore. And what he found was that when the children in his study who had Down syndrome reached a size, a physical size, when the expectation would be for a typical child that they would be talking, doing this more mature interaction, that the parents' interaction with the child shifted to giving commands and directions primarily. Physical size. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So we have apparently some innate Mm -hmm. expectation that when kids are a certain size, they're going to interact in a certain way. And what he did then was train the parents to back up and use those more slow, highlighted, motherese kinds of things. And the kids had language growth as a result. Ah. So, yeah. But they had not arrived at the place where the kids in the Hart and Risley study had, and the parents could shift and everybody's fine. Parents got to that place. They looked at the child. They had other children. They saw a kid who should be doing this. And so I think sometimes there was probably an element of, I don't want to talk baby talk with this large person. It's socially inappropriate for me to do that. So what they worked on was developing more appropriate ways to give the child the language input that they needed at the rate at which they needed, Mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, if the child doesn't respond, your inclination is to give directions. Anybody who's ever taught a class knows that if it's a dull group and they don't raise their hands or smile and nod or whatever, that, you know, there's some kind of shift that goes on in your brain that you just start giving information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you may try to draw them out and if it doesn't work, mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you live with it not working every waking hour, you're going to make some adaptations so that you can maintain your sanity, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. And the Hannon program, if anyone is listening is familiar with that, grew out of Jim McDonald's study at Ohio State back in, uh-huh. back in the 70s. Iola Manelson, who started it, was at a place where she felt like she was beating her head against the wall, trying to get these kids, more severely involved kids, over the next hurdle. And she read that and she was like, that's what we need. And she started trying different strategies. And of course, now they have this giant parent training library of stuff, wonderful examples of how to interact and all that. But it's expensive. And I will say that if you read the second book here, (laughs) The Social World of Children Learning to Talk. This one. Yes. Yes. What they did in that book, I mean, the first one is really about data. The second one is like, we couldn't just let it stop at numbers. We had to talk about what we saw in a qualitative fashion. And that's really what it's about. They've got some delightful transcriptions of adult 
child interaction and some not so delightful ones. And they're examples of the different kinds of things that they're talking about, these qualities that need to be in there. I have to share one of them. Okay. It's so classically child language development. After talking with the parent about a fly buzzing around the living room, a 35-month-old child went to play in his bedroom. When he returned to the living room, he initiated. Our flu went away. His mother said, what went away? The child said, our flu. His mother said, you flew away? Are you a bird? The child said, no, that fly went away. And as their parents intended them to, the children became increasingly flexible. You know, fly and flu go together. I just think that is just mm-hmm. hilarious. <laughs> it's gone, yeah. so it's a flu. Yeah. <laughs> the fly flu. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> it flew. Yeah. It flew away. Yeah. So it says by the time the children were 34 to 36 months old, only 18% of what they said was recorded as non-word utterances that made no sense. So they were taking language and applying it and not always correctly, but they had learned that language was flexible and could be applied in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking earlier about the categories of the variables, uh, the language diversity, feedback tone. The next one was symbolic emphasis. And that was the sum of nouns, modifiers, past tense verbs per hour divided by the utterances per hour. So the richer the interaction, the more symbolic emphasis there was. There was a a lot of words, a lot of words of different kinds, a lot of, you know, meaning being conveyed orally rather than pointing and Mm -hmm. grunting. The guidance style was the next thing. Auxiliary fronted, can you, do you, (laughs) yes, no questions, Mm -hmm. divided by the auxiliary fronted yes, no questions plus imperatives per hour. So what they did was take how many yes, no questions can you, do you? And, you know, those are questions that we use very socially. Could you get that for me? Oh, look at the child playing. Can you build a bigger tower? Mm-hmm. It's a question, not an imperative. Build a bigger tower. Yes. So what they found was that number of those yes, no questions And then the total number of those yes, no questions being viewed as directives, indirect directives. I mean, pragmatically, they're still giving directions, okay? Plus the number of imperatives, put your toys away, that kind of thing. The ratio was how many auxiliary questions to the total number of questions plus imperatives, which are accomplishing the same thing, but in a very different kind of way. And the quality responses were the, oh, don't you think we should questions rather than it's time to go to bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that I've never said it's time to go to bed. Yeah. We've all done that. Yeah. But, but let's get going. Yeah. But it's another form. It's a language form for that yes, kid. Yes. Yeah. It's exposure. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Keep going. But it would be really interesting, I think, to look at their data because pragmatics were not a really big thing at the time that they did this to go back and comb through and say, okay, so what were the pragmatic functions of these different things? And, and what do those ratios look mm-hmm. like? Just conversation making. They did keep track of that. I had a very interesting definition of turn-taking, mm-hmm. whether it was an initiation or a response or you know a, a totally new turn. And if it was less than five seconds between, say, the parent says, oh, look, and the toddler says, oh, that. If there's less than five seconds, that counted as an interaction. If there was a bigger gap than five seconds, they viewed it as a a new response. Oh, really? And more recent study, the one I mentioned earlier that was in ASHA in 2017, Mm -hmm. was they found that that was a pretty adequate way of looking at whether it was an ongoing conversation or a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit, you know. Okay. Everywhere. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. So as you're working with a child, You want to look at the rate that the child responds. Would that be kind of interesting or? It would be. Although five seconds is a long time. It's a long time. Yeah, it really is. Actually, I kind of view that as a guide for backing off. Ah. You know? Yeah. (laughs) I want the response now. And, you know, maybe if a typical child is taking five seconds to respond, maybe I need to give six or eight to the child with a language impairment. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, and you have that whole processing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I think that processing thing is so vivid in toddlers because they're, you know, 
they're trying to coordinate all this activity, what they're doing physically, what they're doing cognitively, what they're talking about, what do I do with this stuff in my hands, you know, all that. And so their responses tend to be more latent than older children, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't have any data on that, but that's my gut. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you've seen enough kids that you have a, you can have your observations and your opinions and (laughs) sure, of course. And the last thing was responsiveness. So that was, I mean, a response is a response, like stimulus response, you do something. So an initiation was also considered a response. Mm -hmm. So what they took was the total number of responses subtracted the initiations from that. And divided it by the total responses per hour. So the more responsive the parent was, as opposed to initiating, the higher that ratio and the richer the interaction. Those were really kind of key things. Wow, explain that one for me. (laughs) Okay, so... This is really close to math. I don't do math. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's why we went into this field, right? No math. No math. And one of the features that they noted that they coded to get that ratio was what they call adjacency conditions. And those are initiations, responses, and floor holding. How many times is the kid just talking to keep the adult's attention or the adult is holding the floor, you know, trying to get the child along? So that's what they're looking at. And what they want, not what you want, but the higher the proportion of responding to what the other in the conversation is saying as opposed to starting something new or giving to imperatives, that sort of thing, the richer the interaction Mm -hmm. and the stronger the outcomes for the children. Okay. All right. I mean, maybe I'm not interpreting this right, but is that sort of like staying on topic and continuing the flow of Well, it is continuing the flow. I don't know that it necessarily is staying on topic. Okay. Because the response, as opposed to initiation, was that five-second thing. Okay. That's what determined. Okay. If the parents said, oh, look, I found a button. And the kid says, I have a duck. (laughs) (laughs) It has nothing to do with it. If they said it within five seconds, that was still, I mean, they were were engaged in an interaction. Sure, sure. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. I was going to say topics and three-year-olds are not necessarily the best of friends. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. You know what? I have something that I would like to read and I'd like you to respond to it. If I can see here, this is in this book, you know, the social book. And it's the data led us to a simple message for parents. I thought that was pretty good. I liked that opening statement. When you talk with your children a lot about things that are not important, you automatically give them experiences that are important to their cognitive and emotional learning. While your children are little, your conversation matters. Children get better at what they practice and have more language tools, more nuances, more fluency, more steps in the social dances of life, is likely to contribute at least as much to your children's future success as their heredity and their choice of friends. I think that's profound. I think it is too. It is profound. You know, we like to just talk about the really important things of life, but this is, and this kind of reaches out to the expanse of interactions. This is sort of the opposite of COVID, (laughs) you know, staying in your home. Yes, very much so. You know, (laughs) yeah. But getting out, experiencing, you know, and really, you know, going to the zoo and going to the river and going to the whatever and interacting in so many different ways. And that doesn't seem terribly important and educational, but it is extremely important and enriching. Yes. It makes me think of the discussion among young parents about quality time versus quantity time. Mm -hmm. And I think what they're saying is that quantity matters as much as quality. I mean, we think of, oh, well, we want them to have these big experiences. We want to go to the zoo. We want to take them on an airplane. We want to do, you know what? Those things are fine, but it's picking up the strawberries that fell on the floor. But there's that, that too. Yes. Just as important yeah. to the child's understanding of their world. Ah, Give them a lot yeah. of, you know, sort of out of body experiences, like, you know, going to the Bahamas or something like that. Uh, they'll like the beach, but they would have liked the beach at Lake Erie probably just as well. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's who they're with and who they're interacting with. Yeah. That's, that's what matters. How you make the most of that experience. 
not just to tick off that you went to that particular beach. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, Terry. Yes. This is just a really interesting conversation. And the entire study was just phenomenal, just phenomenal. And just so rich with explanations, but also information as to how we can interact with our kids in therapy and then pass information along to the parents. I would love to see somebody sort of boil down, maybe it's been done, sort of distill the information in this book and say, here, parent, <laughs> you know, here's, here's what you should that's do. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I do think that's what the Hannon program is about. They've tried to yeah, do that. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah. Well, I heard Ayola Mandelson once at a conference and there was somebody else presenting. I don't remember who it was, but a psychologist who was talking about parent-child interaction and how I've ever since thought that this is a really important parameter that no one ever talked to me about when I was in school, that it also has to do with who the parent is and who the child is. And he had this profound video of a depressed mother feeding the toddler in the high chair. And she's just, and the baby is very winning, very sweet, you know, and trying to engage the mother, trying to make eye contact. And mom is just, she's just not there. On the other hand, then he had like the opposite, this parent who was so everything you want a parent to be talking about stuff. And look at then the kid is (laughs) just completely ambivalent. He didn't care. And so it was a mismatch too. So, uh, you know, I think we have to keep that in mind too. And it could be depend on the day too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm having a grumpy day today. We're not going to have quality interaction yeah. <laughs> because yeah. he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And there's so many factors. Yeah. What the beauty of this book, and I would encourage people to read it, is that it's not written. I mean, there's tons of research and data in it, but it's not written that way. It's written yeah. in a very readable. Very, very. I love their style of writing. It's yes. Very yes. enjoyable to read. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And just rich in itself. Yes, of it is. The amount of stuff in it. It is very much so. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you. Thank you for reading and interpreting and distilling a massive amount of information in very helpful chunks for us as to what we need to know. So thank you so very much. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. Yes. Good to see you again. Yes, yes. So in closing, I want to thank all of you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about SpeechLink Podcast where you not only earn tons of practical information, you earn CEUs. And do know that in a very few days, you'll be able to access this course through speechtherapypd.com and watch it again if you want to. And if you so desire, the audio-only version will be on all the popular podcasts like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Podbean, etc. And I really do want to thank you. I appreciate your positive, supportive comments and your good reviews with all of that. Also, if you're planning ahead for next month, September 22nd at 7 o'clock Eastern, p.m. Eastern, the amazing Dr. Holly Storkel will make her second appearance and will be sharing her insights about working with language disordered children. Last time she focused on speech sounds. So I hope you can attend And I hope that you know just how much you are appreciated. Thank you so much for all you do for your therapy kids. See you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be a part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit sharpochart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time. 